Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have made significant transformational changes, which in turn have led to the renaming of periods into ages. You've personally lived, uh, you personally have just experienced the information age, and what a ride it's been. Now, consider that you might now, right now, be living through another transitional period into a new age, the Age of Infinite. An age that is not defined by scarcity and abundance, but by a redefined lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and resources, which will be made possible through a new construct where the moon and earth, or as we call it, mirth, will create a new ecosystem, an economic system, to take us into an infinite future. The ingredients for an amazing sci-fi story that has come to life in your lifetime. The podcast is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, we were named by NASA, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. Then to use the endeavors, the paradigm-shifting thinking, and the innovations, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring another fantastic topic. The choice for planet B is in our hands. With us is Juan. De Del Mau, who is, uh, well, hi, how are you, Juan? <laughs> Hello, David. Uh, good to hear you and excellent pronunciation. Yeah, so we, we actually, I worked on making sure, or we worked on making sure that I said his name properly. And Juan is, is going to be in the next week, he's going to be ending his term as the president of the International Space University at Strasbourg in France. He's uh, studied mechanical engineering and business administration, and while at the university, he's taught interdisciplinary studies. I'm adding one point right now, and we haven't had it in the other interviews, only because in the past month, three people made comments about the interviews, which surprised me. So that you know, this is the process that we have to, to create a podcast. We find a guest. We've turned down over 300 people over the years that I've done podcasting in this uh, series. We've had guests that just didn't work out. We then work on together, the two of us create a title for the program. And that could take up to two hours to create just the title. I don't know what we're going to be talking about. I personally don't know. I have never seen the outline that Juan is going to be giving us today. I've done no research, no homework. As a matter of fact, I even show Juan that I have a piece of paper in front of me that's completely blank except for the title and his name on it. And during a typical program, I take anywhere from 10 to 20 pages of notes. So with that said, Juan, do you have an outline for us? Yes, David. Okay. I like, uh, I like outlines because um, they help us organize our ideas and our conversation. And I think the best outline is uh, the title that you just gave to our chat today. I like when you said that we are going to discuss the choice for planet B is in our hands. So here is my outline. Just look at the words we are using in this title, the choice. That means that uh, we will talk about how to make choices and who makes them and how to make the right choices. So we will okay. be talking about decision-making. Yeah. Then 
the title goes on and says the choice for planet B. So I would like to talk about planets A, B, and C and others. Okay. And then third part of the title is the choice for planet B is in our hands. So what this is telling us is that we want to discuss what to do with our hands. Once we have made the choice, how do we make it happen? So I like personally decision-making, mm -hmm. but then I like building and making those decisions a reality. Uh, so that's it. That's the outline, David, no, if you like that works, it. That works for me. It, it follows exactly the title. So I, I won't get too lost on this. So then let's start with uh, number one, the, the choices, how, who, when, decisions, decision-making. Uh, where, where are we going with this? I think we can go very far. And um, I like to share my own experiences and, and my own learnings in life. And uh, since you are also a, an experienced person in life, uh, even if you are a slightly younger than me, I would imagine, uh, well, uh, because I, oh, yeah. I did see you. Oh, we, I did, okay. I did, did see you on a video yeah, call. We, we also don't have our video on at all during this. So uh, do you want to, how old are you? Uh, my parents tell me I was born in 1958 and I have always believed them. So that well, makes uh, 63. Okay. So I was born in 1963 and I am 58. So yes, you are older than me. <laughs> Good. Uh, that's an interesting combination. 58, 63. Yes. You were born in 63 and are now 58. Yeah. And I am the reverse. I yes, was you're... born in 58 and now 63. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, back to your choice, to your question about choices. What I've learned in life is that you can always think back and ask yourself, did I make the right choice? And what I have learned is that Whatever choice you make, you better listen to people first and then make your own conclusion and don't follow people too easily. Uh, I have learned the hard way uh, to sometimes go too fast in, in decisions or even go too fast in coming to conclusions in, in a discussion or in a meeting or in a project. So in summary, what I have learned is that it pays off to take the time to listen, to discuss, and to listen again, and to spend more time listening than in speaking. That helps making the right choice. I have also learned that if you are a good listener, you gain people's respect and they come back to you to ask you for more. Even if you don't speak all the time in meetings, people do come to you because they have heard you saying the right thing at the right time, which may be very little things, but I would say more towards the end of the discussion. I may sound like a priest, but- um, No, no. That's, you're, uh, you're... that's my, my learning. Well, it, the the. I love, how do I say this nicely? I hear what you're saying. And yet these 
these are not the typical approaches that people use. So how do you do these activities? I think it's all not all my merit because when I was a child, I remember I was very shy. Whenever I had to speak in class or in public, uh, my heart would go uh, at high rate. And my parents, they registered me in uh, theater classes. And then that helped because you have to learn how to speak and how to yeah. have a, a bunch of people in front of you. But uh, still, after the theater experience, uh, I still needed more, more rehearsals and more uh, public speaking uh, until I... Uh, attended a, a university called International Space University, where we were really encouraged and, uh, and coached to uh, speak and to um, convey our ideas. So you, you went so, to the International Space University when? Uh, as a young engineer with uh, only three or four years of uh, professional experience in my late 20s, I was already working in the space uh, industry uh, but uh, obviously uh, in, in a very narrow field. Um, and attending the International Space University uh, taught me a lot of things, including this uh, making choices and uh, listening in meetings and um, letting people express their ideas. Uh, and one of the very interesting components of, of those uh, uh, summer schools is what the ISU calls uh, team projects, where a group of uh, 25 to, to 40 uh, young graduates and, and professionals, they are confronted with a challenging topic. Uh, for example, how will you reduce the level of uh, CO2 of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which as we know today is, is the main factor for global warming and for all these extreme uh, weather events that we see. So we give to a group of people a topic and we ask them, how can space technology and space research contribute to a future solution that will help us reduce the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And then uh, the group is given entire freedom to go in the direction they want. The, the boundary conditions are, you have one day at the end of the course where you will have a bunch of uh, senior people listening to your final presentation and reading your report and your executive summary. And what happens in, in the middle, in the two months roughly of uh, work is up to the class itself to decide. So we're coming again to the choice is in our hands. So here you see a group of uh, about 30 young people, but some of them not so young. Uh, we had uh, in, some in the early 20s, some in their early 40s some with uh, significant professional experience, uh, some knew about space, others uh, had almost never heard about space, but the topic has to do with space because that's the name of the university. And um, the first meetings are 
brainstorming type. So for example, what I learned about brainstorming is that everyone needs to accept that they are in brainstorming mode before they go into production mode or into writing mode or into uh, making choices. So prior to making a choice, it's good to be in brainstorming mode. And if you are a group of 30 intelligent people, how do you get organized if you have zero hierarchy, if you have zero rules? Do you decide to choose a leader or a moderator? Do you decide to have minutes of meetings? Do you decide to give the floor to everyone? Or do you just let those who speak loudest um, be the, the leaders? And what happens to those who never speak, but who might have great ideas? If they come from China, for example, where the culture is completely different. If you are not asked by your manager in China to speak, you don't speak, even if you have the best idea in the group. So how do you bring a group of people from China, from Russia, from the United States, from Europe, from South Africa, from India? In all these countries, there are obviously brilliant people, but they have completely different cultures and ways of taking decisions, ways of working in, in teams. Uh, so that's what I learned. Um, and that's what brought me to the listening mode. And whenever needed, we would have smaller breakout conversations. And I enjoyed sitting down with the Japanese or sitting down with the Chinese, even if it was during lunch. You didn't need to schedule an appointment because it was a live-in experience. You would really live with your classmates and with the professors and experts. We would share most of the meals. And then slowly you get to open up with a person from an Asian culture who maybe never uh, left uh, her or his country. And just with a bit of time, they really tell you what they know. And then you discover that you have a gem in the team who can really contribute greatly and uh, become, um, at the end of the process, become even a speaker in the final presentation. Or... Um, uh, just uh, give the best of, uh, of her or his uh, skills in, uh, in uh, uh, video making or in graphic design or in computing and, and simulating. Um, so you may ask me, David, why did I choose the topic of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Yeah, I was going to get to that. I was, just, I was listening. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. Well, I will be transparent to you. Uh, last evening, I was reading the uh, summary of a very interesting work that was published just one week ago on climate change. Uh, this is uh, an international group called the IPCC. Uh, for those who have never heard of this acronym, it means Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is a group of uh, several dozens of uh, scientists from all over the world who have been working together, mostly remotely. Um, since several years, they have produced a different series of their publications. And the last series was published last week. Uh, their report is online. And on the first page, it says, 
this report is still being edited and uh, copy uh, edited, meaning that there's, there's still a small improvement, but the report is there and the document uh, in the collection of reports that I read is just the executive summary that they call, I think, for, for decision makers or uh, something like this. So I started with that. It's about 40 pages long. And it shows, it showed me that planet Earth is getting warmer because we have made it warmer. It's very clear. It also tells us that some of the processes, for example, the ice cap melting, are going to take centuries to reverse them. Even if we would stop now all the emissions of greenhouse gases, if we would just stop now, the ice melting would still continue oh, yeah. for it's many, gonna, many years. It's going to continue for quite some time. It's, it's, yes. already, uh, it's already in, you can't, st- well, it's like the COVID curves. Just, you yes. can't stop it in the middle of going up. You have yeah. to, it's got to find a point in which it starts going right. down. Right, right. So we are already engaged in, in a very long-term process and um, ice melting means sea level rise. And uh, this document is very, very clearly showing that um, which part of the world will see a higher uh, sea level uh, rises. It can go up to several meters uh, in, in a few uh, decades. So we will be seeing major changes. It also explains that um, the extreme weather phenomena that we see these years in terms of uh, floods and uh, even bushfires and, and high temperatures and storms, they are a clear consequence of human activity and of uh, the uh, mainly the, the greenhouse gases and the carbon dioxide that, as we all know, comes from burning uh, fuel, uh, fossil, fossil fuel primarily. So here we need good people who can make the right choices on uh, our planet. I call it planet Earth for the time being. I'm okay. not using letter, letter B. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled out the report. Uh, at least what I'm looking at, it's 414 pages. Yes, yes, I think that's the the full one. Yes. Okay. Uh, but uh, there must be somewhere on the same website the uh, the shorter one. I think they call it for for decision makers or for governments. Okay. I'm not sure. Cool. I'll look. I just pulled it up to make sure I didn't forget it. Yes. Yes. And I think there will be videos um, for those who prefer to learn about this report without having to read the whole thing. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they, they will be good. So this is uh, under the umbrella of the United Nations. Uh, it's, as I said, uh, a very respected group of, of scientists and, uh, and they are very cautious in the way they describe things. Every sentence, every conclusion, they give a level of probability to it. So it's uh, really well done. And when you see who signs it, uh, you have to 
say to yourself, yeah, these people know what they're talking about. It's, it's not just a, a small lab in a, in a remote place that, that has come up with a new theory. It's, it's really solid science. Uh, so that's our planet. And um, for me, especially since I'm in the world of education, um, we need well-prepared people to take us uh, to the planet that we want or to keep us in the planet that we want. I'm going to break in a little bit because you said you chose the reduced level of CO2 in the atmosphere for the students as an example, that we're talking about decision-making. My first question, there are others, but my first question is, do they come up with answers that actually work? They work in three phases in most of these projects. The first one, as we were discussing, is brainstorming, uh, listening to experts. Uh, so there are first a series of um, core lectures or, or seminars covering uh, different aspects of um, space sciences and atmospheric sciences, but also um, covering the uh, legal uh, aspects, uh, international collaboration, uh, the economics of the whole thing, um, the engineering solutions. And the second phase is deciding on what do they want to put in the report that should be guided by a mission statement. So they define their own final objective. What do they want their report to do? Should it be a roadmap for government officials or for scientists around the world on what to do next? Or should it be the proposal for a new international agency that will take care of climate change? Or will it be uh, an international fundraising effort to really get resources uh, to investigate what is important to know in the area of climate change? Or is it a combination of everything? And to answer your question, David, those reports, they they come up with uh, good ideas very often that are picked up by decision makers. And uh, sometimes those ideas, they come too early, but eventually uh, they make it into reality. Uh, there have been, for example, uh, a, space, a national space agency that was set up uh, based on one of those reports, or there have been companies or uh, competitive uh, research grants that have been obtained uh, as a consequence of the initial team project reports. Uh, So the outcome is manifold, uh, but what does happen systematically is that at least some of the uh, alumni, they take their project and then they present it at an international conference. They adapt it or they make it into a a PhD thesis. Uh, So the ideas out of these projects, they, they have their own life uh, afterwards. The reason I ask is uh, very specific because I find a lot, there are a lot of think tanks, groups who work on projects all the time. And if we were to look around the world, 
Climate change, if we use just that category, and I don't know if you know there in Project Moonhot, we have six mega challenges. In my opinion, the 17 SDGs were not completely thought through uh, for a variety of reasons, not to pick on them, but there's even grammatical structure. The first two are no hunger, no poverty. But then we have gender equality, and that's cultural. There's so many, there's so many different challenges with the way they're structured. So we have six, and one of them is climate change. And I, in my work, I, I talk to people like you all the time as we're developing Project Moon. And I had this individual on the phone the other day, and he said, very bright guy, does a lot of research, does his homework. And he, I listened to him describe how he was going to solve this version of climate change. And I said, so you're going to close down in five years? Because he said, if we don't get this done in five years, it's going to be terrible. And I said, so, so in five years, you'll close down your business, your operations, your foundation, you'll close it down because you didn't achieve it. He said, what do you mean? I said, look, you tell me five years that the earth has, and you have a plan to solve it. That plan has to account for 7.5 billion people, 50 million species, and you have the answer. So if we followed it in five years, we'd be done. And he looks at me, we're on Zoom. And I said, don't you get it? If you have a plan, plans for after five years, then your plans don't work. And he puts his hands between his head, his head between his hands. And he says, we have plans for ten, five years, 10 years and 15 years. I said, how can you have a 10 and 15 year plan if five years? He said, well, we account for other people to do things. I said, then that's not a plan to solve it. That's a plan to do what you want to do, but it's not solving the challenge of climate change in five years. So the reason I'm asking the question is you give people an assignment. They get to choose that assignment. Yet to me, I don't see climate change stopping. So tons of people around the world have given these projects to people. Climate change has not stopped. Neither is mass extinction. We have 500 new species on the endangered species list out of, uh, out of Australia because of the forest fires last year where 2 billion uh, animals were killed. We are not stopping mass extinction. So if all of these people, and I'm not picking on you, I'm using it for decision-making, what are we doing wrong if these are the methodologies we use and we're not solving them? Yes, well, I think we... We can take this back to the vision of the, of the founders of the International Space University. Um, you know, this was in, during the Cold War, where some countries uh, hardly talked to each other. And uh, their vision was, if humanity needs to go to space, or also if humanity wants to take advantage of the immense opportunities of space down here on earth. We need a university that trains those decision makers who will take humanity to space in a peaceful way, in an inclusive way. We need to train the future decision makers around the world whether they are in policy, in economics, in science, um, in entrepreneurship, 
we would like them to share the same values of international collaboration, of peaceful development and exploration. And we want them to speak the same language in a virtual way. In other words, we want them to be friends. So that word was used in the Cold War. And I happen to be one of the early students of that visionary university, sharing a, a class with uh, all these diverse people. And the objective is that whatever decisions are made, they take into account what others are doing and uh, that the consequences of those decisions are as much as possible beneficial to the large populations and not just beneficial to a few and then detrimental to others. So this uh, spirit of inclusiveness, of mutual respect, of discussing and learning together is still today our DNA, uh, no matter what decisions are made or who makes them, um, it is a state of mind that we're building. And this has been going on for 30 years now. There are over 5,000 alumni. Most of them are working in the space uh, field, about 80%. And uh, what's interesting today to see is that you can go virtually to any organization that is space related, whether it's a space agency or a company or a research lab. For example, you look for a partner or a, or a customer or a supplier, or you look for a politician who should listen to your idea. Wherever you go, you will most probably find someone who has studied at this university. Uh, so I think the advantage of the space community is that it's still very small compared, for example, with aeronautics or with defense. Uh, and this makes it possible that with only 5,000 alumni, you have one or two in, in every space-related organizations. So you can go and talk to someone who has been to the same place, even if it's not the same promotion, and then you, immediately you connect uh, and it makes the conversation much easier. I shared with you before we got on the call that in Project Moon Hut, 70, 80% of the people that we have are not space people. And I, and I also shared that to me, space is a geography, it's not an industry. Uh, we don't look for people who have that background because we're looking for individuals who look at the world differently. It doesn't matter what discipline they're in. And I was in Luxembourg. I spoke, I've shared this before. I don't know if I shared it with you. I spoke in Luxembourg and I was asked to speak at their space conference. There were 500 people who showed up at, the, at this event the year before. And they said, David, we'd like you to speak at this event. And I said, that'd be great. I'd love to speak for you. What, what do you want me to talk about? And we came up with a topic. And it's part of a broader conference. They also have an artificial intelligence one and a fintech one or some others. I don't remember off the top of my head. I, I know there's an AI side. And I show up into the room that's supposed to have these 500 people. And it's post the year 
that they are one the year before, I think that's when they lost the money from Planet Resources. I think they put in 18 million. So the country lost the 18 million. I don't, that's an exact number. Don't quote me on it. And there were less than 75 people in the room. And there was an excitement the year before because they thought of opportunity and things moving well. And here I am in this room and I said, look, it's, it's the 50th anniversary of the space flight. And we're no further than we were. I mean, we've done a lot in, in low earth orbit. We've sent probes out and we've seen. We haven't achieved the dreams that were talked about 40 years ago. So going back to this decision-making, is this decision-making model where someone comes in, they're asked the question, they have to learn, and that's leadership and that's management and that's getting together and doing. Is that the approach that we need to solve two challenges? One, solving for Earth, and two, achieving the desired outcomes that individuals have to reach further than Earth. Yes, I think um, we can look at the answer from the following point of view. You mentioned Luxembourg. Um, you could go to the first space company that was set up in Luxembourg, that, that was SES, uh, yep. Satellite Communications. I lived there for a bit, so yes. Right. And uh, you go to, to Betzdorf and you ask around, uh, can you introduce me to, to some ISU alumni? Uh, immediately, everyone will say yes, this or that because not only they are alumni, but they, they have lunch together regularly. So they know who's who. And then you talk to the managers and ask them, why are you hiring ISU alumni? And they will tell you because they are different. Because they come with a more open mind. They are able to tackle complex topics. They know how to talk to people and how to listen. They are not afraid of sitting down with someone who may have a completely different background. Um, because when you have a different background, you also have a different way of tackling problems and uh, solving problems and taking decisions. So they've been through this experience and uh, they make them, this experience make, makes them better employees. So SES is just one example of a company that comes to ISU. No, I, I understand for that. Mine is mine, is a, mine yeah. is a bigger question. Is you talked yeah. about CO two and solving for the atmosphere. If if this model works, the model you're talking about of leadership of of education or group dynamics, where you give them, they brainstorm, they come up with, they deliver, then. Does, do you have a group of people right now who have solved the reducing the level of CO2 in the atmosphere? And is that something that will do it in a, in a near-term solution? Is there an answer sitting with a group of students right now? Not a paper, not a thesis, not a new group, not a new agency. Is there a paper right now that solves this? for 7.5 billion people and 50 million species where humans are just one of them. I wish there was, I wish there was. <laughs> and um, probably I'm not the, the best person to answer because I am by far not a climatologist. Um, 
or uh, an expert in in uh, in these things. But uh, what I'm interested in, also in sharing with you, uh, David, is is the process and the way we might find the solution you're asking for by uh, collaboration, but also by bringing in uh, non-space players. And that's something that uh, we've been discussing earlier today with uh, my successor uh, at the presidency of ISU, Professor Pascal Ehrenfreund. Um, one of uh, her priorities is to bring closer together the, the space and what we uh, call the non-space. Um, and we believe that precisely this challenge of uh, the, the CO2 levels in the atmosphere can be very attractive to researchers, but also to investors. Um, can you imagine if a company has a system that you can install in places and uh, just uh, transform CO2 into something else that, that can be used? Um, that doesn't exist yet, but maybe we can find it uh, together by attracting um, investors and decision makers from completely different areas and, and different countries. Well, that that's exactly what we're doing. We don't we don't look for people who are space people. Meaning, I, and I, I I shared this with Nicole Stott on the last interview. Is we've just brought on. Price Orders Coopers, Deloitte, and PwC. And in each of the rooms, they saw our videos for Project Moon Up. They see what we're looking to do. Our desired outcome is to improve life on Earth for all species. We're addressing some of these challenges, including climate change. And they said they were more or less fighting who could be on the call. And out of 18 or 16 people, only one of them was related or a, very, a space person, if we want to call it that, because we didn't need space people. Project Moon Hut needs tax people. And the, uh, the, the person, we have an individual for the past three years who does the cleaning up. We don't edit our podcasts. We only cut front and back and sound balance. Uh, Dor Avi, um, Aviran out of Israel from Binary Options. He is not a space person. The individuals we look for are people who are great at what they do. And then we give them the challenge of what we're working on. So... I'm really interested in the outcomes. If we've 30 years, and let's not pick on, let's look at concepts, not Space University. The concept of educating individuals to solve the major challenges we have on earth. Let's use global, it doesn't matter where they are, where they work, where they live. We need a better, faster solution methodology. It's not about investment to me. Yeah, sure, we need to make some more money. But if, in fact, the data that's coming back is true, that there is expected to be about 50 to 60 degrees C across the Mediterranean, which goes through Tunisia, which goes all the way to Bangladesh, India, through Hong Kong and, the, and that region, comes all the way around to Texas and Mexico. If we have 50 to 60 degrees C, we're going to have max exodus. We're going to have civil, political uh, environmental unrest, we're going to have challenges so enormous that, uh, that we won't be able to solve these challenges in that time frame, in that later time, because we'll be so overwhelmed with the other challenges. 
So how do we take your model, not, not International Space University, I'm talking about your model that you're using, that Juan's using, how do we take that model and make it so that we actually solve the challenges? I think we have a good example with the, the international medical community and COVID. COVID is one of these challenges, uh, global challenges that uh, doesn't know about uh, political borders or climate zones or, or time zones. And I think we've had a good example of the medical communities all over the world really exchanging data very quickly so that they could learn from each other, their experiences in uh, mitigating, in protecting the populations, but also in the development of, of vaccines. Um, I think we have broken the record of uh, how much time it takes to yeah, develop I think a new I think before it was four or five years, and now we brought that down. Yes. 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 So I think that model um, can be a good start for we, we humanity saw, tackling other challenges. Yeah. We might have addressed one challenge, and that is the challenge of creating the vaccine. Yet, when it was this, the construct of human nature, was not part of the science. So for example, they didn't say, what if there was an individual in authority who discounted the fact that COVID didn't exist and created a movement of millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world would fall fault, find fault in this development. So that side of the equation was scientifically addressed, but human nature not addressed. And I think the same thing happens traditionally with, with climate change. We're having the same exact conversation. We have individuals who say, we need to protect the environment. And then they have their air con on. Uh, every time the, the guy who invented Siri say, uh, has done the calculations, that every time you post one image on Facebook, Instagram, or any of these, you use enough power to be able to get the image through the wires, through the servers, and get it posted, not including storage to power three 20 watt light bulbs for one hour. So if someone posts 10 times in a day, they could have had 10 hours of just 10 images, 10 hours of three light bulbs running the entire time. So on one hand, don't eat meat. On the other hand, go tell the Kazakhstanis that it's their culture. Go tell the Texans they can't have meat. So maybe while the COVID has part of the solution, we're still missing the, bio, the human nature side of it, which is not being addressed as appropriately. Yes, yes. Uh, I want to be an optimist, uh, David. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, and I, I, I am an optimist, but I go negative often to solve yes, for positive. That's right, how I, right. you, well, you've got to look around and say, <laughs> well, let's say, how about being a realist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to be an optimist because I do see progress in society uh, and in industry. I see people changing behaviors. Um, today's uh, younger generations, at least in the countries where I am uh, evolving, think differently from my youth years. Uh, the young people of today are much more aware of uh, how their behavior can have an impact on climate change, for example. 
um, they are thinking twice before taking an airplane. I never heard this when I was a young person. They are thinking twice before buying a car, not only because it's expensive, but also because it pollutes. Um, I see in industry, uh, if you go to a, a fast food place, the uh, covers of the cups today, they are made of paper. No, no more plastic. Um, so I think um, things are changing because of science, because of uh, social pressure, because of um, uh, political correctness. It's, it's all a combination. Uh, so I, I still want to be an optimist. I, I Maybe we're not the, going uh, fast uh, enough. Huh? No, no, Maybe we're not we're going not fast going... enough. And I <laughs> again, here I come with being pragmatic, being uh, to, to looking with my own eyes. I have lived in Hong Kong for 10 years. I spent a lot of time in all of the, from Japan all the way through Cambodia, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, in China. The 76, I don't know the exact number, again, don't quote me, a percent of the world's population lives there. And they are consuming at an unbelievable pace. Uh, in China, they built a dump that was supposed to last 50 years. It lasted 25 years. Again, it's, I don't know if you spent the time in these type of countries, not again, but I don't know if you spent the time in these countries, but consumerism is still huge. Unfortunately. And, and it's, I'm not going to say it's unsustainable. That's a bad way to look at it. I would say that the solutions we're using and the hope that we're, that's being expressed, as you just said it, this new generation. Yes. What did the new, I mean, you, you probably remember you weren't born in the States, but there was something called the 60s and 70s and it was peace, love, rock and roll, save the world, become amazing. Who did these yep. people become? Who, who did yeah. they grow up to be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They became the hedge fund managers, the mega mansion people, the flying all over the world people. I, I, yes. We can't put our, my belief is we can't put our hope in a generation that doesn't have the influence and in economic power to yeah, be able to make yeah, those yeah. changes. Yes, and, and uh, you will allow me to take this back to education. Sure, and I'd love to, absolutely. Education and training, uh, which is, in my opinion, at the, at the basis of all this. And I have learned, for example, through a more recent uh, team project of uh, our students here in Strasbourg, who were looking at uh, plastic in the oceans. Uh, I was an ignorant in this field. I had always thought, yeah, all these plastic islands on the oceans, that's because the people on the ships, they, they dump everything in the water. Oh, really? Okay. But my students taught me that most of it comes through uh, all the, uh, the rivers and everything that the urban areas dump in the sea. Yeah, And that's where the plastic comes from. So that is much closer now to the behavior of each individual citizen and what you dump and how you do it, but also the behavior of the uh, authorities and uh, the recycling or the non-recycling organizations and companies who uh, dump things uh, on the rivers and, uh, and the seas. Um, so education, and I see this again in, in the younger generation, uh, of people, they know that um, the textile industry 
uh, and all the tissues and all the old clothes that we throw away, that is also very polluting. So if you never were told this, um, you just continue buying and you continue consuming, as you were saying. So, but if you know the consequences and someone gives you the numbers and if the young kids at school are really, really um, learning about this, uh, they will be different citizens. I don't think that's happening. Okay. I just don't even, but uh, well, you, but you, you just agree. You agree education is important. I, no, I definitely, but depends on what we define as education. The, right. the challenge, you use a great example, solid waste runoff, which is a plastics into the ocean. And it is a big, big, it is a challenge. However, if I was to tell you with everything you've just described and, the, and plastics are a big topic, we do consume a lot of plastics and they don't break down and they sit in ocean floors and they clog up ways and they make it difficult for animals. The United States every day dumps 12 billion gallons of municipal waste into the oceans because of old pipes, because of structure, because of all sorts of things. But it's 12 billion. If we were then go and the if we were to then go to Europe with 720 million people, all inclusive, there's more dumped than the United States. But let's assume that's 12 billion. And then if we just took two countries, I'm not picking on them. We'll take China and India. They dump, let's just use 12 billion. That's approximately 50 billion gallons of solid waste, uh, municipal waste. That's not including radioactive waste, agricultural waste, industrial waste, mining waste, and several other waste. And to give you an example of what municipal waste would look like is imagine you had a cup in front of you and it's, it has water in it. Unless you use filtration, you probably have particles of microplastics in it. You already have it. Our body drinks them all the time. And then you have another cup next to you and it's municipal waste, but it looks like a deep, dark chocolate coffee. And that's just garbage coming out of our, our cities. If you had to take a scientific guess, which is going to be more destructive to the oceans, the plastic or the poisons, the pesticides, the things that come out in those rivers, not unlike what's happening right now in Hungary, or is it is it Hungary? Yeah, with these um, the the sludge, the sludge, which is covering their uh, or Turkey, it's covering their waterways. Right. Uh, which is more dangerous? And yet, I mean, yes, maybe, I I'm think, um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not going to drink uh, that coffee. Right. Uh, and you're not going to smoke that, smoke that cigarette that has 70 uh, cancer uh, triggering products in it because you know it. Uh, so I think what you just said should be said in all schools. It should. Yeah, by all I, teachers. We have, in we all have countries. people. Uh, we have people. But it is not. But it is not done. It is not done. And, and at the same time, we have people on our team who, when we do our, our calls, they're smoking. I've actually said to myself, I wonder when I meet them, what they will smell like. Mm -hmm. Because they smoke. There are a lot of people around the world who smoke. Yeah. Even like knowing the, these. Yeah. So, uh, so again, I'm coming back to this. We're talking about choices here. My question to you is, as an educator, not as I, International Space University, as an educator, we're missing something. 
I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. We're missing something. And yes. that secret sauce is that we're not looking for reports. We're not looking, we're looking for solutions and people to make them happen. How do we get from making the right choices to making that happen? With the right people. Okay. So, so how, if you're guiding me, we're building Project Moon Hut. We've got teams of people working on all sorts of things. How would I find, how would we find the right people? Silence means we're thinking. <laughs> and um, we, when we look at universities, I think very few universities struggle with um, having sufficient good candidates who want to go and study there. So I think the interest in learning is there. The bright minds are there, but not all candidates have the, the means to study what they want because they don't get the visa to go to where they want to go. Yeah. Or they don't have the wealthy parents or the wealthy government who pays for their tuition. So if we really want to train the right decision makers who will transform those ideas into action, I think we need to invest more in education. And uh, we should maybe um, find a way where um, every company has a foundation for uh, or a charity, not only the big, the big uh, ones, but uh, there's a, a sort of... Uh, a tax that is used on, on education. Um, I know this sounds very, very socialist and uh, I, I actually old, I'm old fashioned, but uh, don't, don't it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't sound that way. I will add my commentary to it and then you tell me how to get around it. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So so we, we have a tax on education. People that they, they have to find a uh, there's a a foundational component of what they do and it makes or it helps universities to become stronger. Yes. And more inclusive. Okay. So before I get to the universities, can, this is a personal question. So try to, and I'm saying it intentionally as a personal question because I'd like a real answer. Uh, well, I, let me ask another question first. Sorry. Do you have children? It doesn't mean you have to have children, but I'm asking a question. Do you have children? Three. Okay, three children. All right. And I, I ask that because timelines change with people. In your timeline, looking at the challenges of the world, you can pick any category you want. What is your timeline that if we don't solve what's going on, we're going to have a we're going to have a lot of challenges. Now it means you could be saying, "Well, but we'll solve it," because that's the way I'm thinking. But what's your timeline? What's I'm the discussing day? this. Uh, I'm discussing this sometimes with our youngest, who is 22. Okay. When he was a young boy, his primary school teacher would tell them about the challenge of water and the scarcity mm -hmm. and the fact that we may end up uh, with insufficient drinking water. And uh, he, he had nightmares about this. Because the teacher was teaching us. 
so the teacher got got her point across and now today this same son is studying physics and he's concerned about uh, the challenges we are discussing uh, today with you uh, david yeah he's concerned and um Next time I will ask him about the timeline, I think he will give a better answer than I could ever just, uh, just guess here. Um, I'll give you the, um, the astronaut answer about um, uh, the question, when are we going to have people on Mars? This is a question that uh, an Italian astronaut has been asking himself to those who know. Mm -hmm. And every time he asks the question, no matter what year it is, he gets the same answer in 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> now, when are we when are we going to solve the uh, planet Earth uh, challenges? Uh, well, <laughs> we need uh, better brains than mine to give you a, a good answer. Well, the, the reason there's a there's a study, and I, I, I again, I'm hoping I'm not screwing it up completely. I'm going to try to look at it very quickly to see if I can find it. But I'll, so I'll ask you a question to to start that with is. Do you know how long behaviorally it takes in terms of the number of meals someone misses before and days that would take, assuming three per day, that an individual will do something they'd never thought they'd do before? They'd steal, they'd kill, they'd do. Do you know how many days the behaviorally come up with that uh, people believe is the, the end of the rope? Well, if I had no food to bring to my mouth, I would go out of the city mm -hmm. in, into the fields yep. and uh, would look for food. Obviously, uh, first you try to do it without stealing, but if you are really, really hungry, I think the law allows you to, to take an apple here and there. <laughs> if that's all you have uh, uh, to Okay. If that's the only way you have. So I would go out to nature. And uh, I think uh, part of the answer to your questions is let's move out of the urban concentrations into nature if we can. Uh, personally, I've grown up in the countryside. And then I went to study in Barcelona, which was a very polluted city. Um, yes, it used to be very bad. Uh, before the Olympics, uh, yeah, now it has improved, but I didn't like Barcelona because it was dirty and uh, polluted and noisy. And now everyone loves Barcelona because it's very lively, very creative, a uh, lot of things to do. Uh, but uh, big cities, I think, are not a human thing. Um, the, the, um, the trend should be for more green and, uh, and more uh, country and more nature. And if you live in the countryside, you can live without having to steal anyone. And if you take this to the extreme, you go to the Amazonian rainforest and you take a good guide, they will show you that you can live in the forest. You don't survive, you live in the forest. You find everything you need to drink, to fish, to eat, to heal yourself. Um, uh, most medicines come from plants and if you know which plant is good for what you're saved uh, so i think that is a good planet to have 
The, the, again, we come back to this number. It's the number I always start with is 7.5 billion people adding 80 million people net gain every year. And in the next 20 some odd years, we'll have 10, 30 years, we'll have 10 billion people on this planet. The number that I've researched, it comes back and is there's different, but if you don't have, if you can't eat for nine meals, it's not a choice. You will do something you never thought you'd do before. If you have children and they're not eating, you might do it sooner because of, because of hunger. Yeah. The challenge that when we look at solving for some of the challenges on earth, and I, sometimes people will say, David, are you going to solve peace on earth? And I say, look, don't we have enough on our plate? And by the way, if we take two heterosexual men and one heterosexual woman and put them on an island stranded, there will not be peace on earth. So I don't think we'll ever have peace on earth. We've had, we'll always have conflict. So we're not solving for that. But if the world becomes superheated, the waters, as you talk about, even go up 15 cm, six inches, 30 cm a foot, we will have displacement at such a scale. We have never, we haven't been able to address it. And it will lead to political, societal, uh, environmental, there'll be so many more challenges that will come out of that, that it's, it, it could be overwhelming to a point that we, we won't have the time to work on the bigger issues and solve for them. That's why I asked that question. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And, and but, so, um... so I understand education, yet when you say education, I'm asking myself, how do we take your model, the choice for plan to be is in our hands, that that the first thing is choices. How do we solve for 7.5 billion? How do we solve for planet Earth in the areas that are necessary? Again, we're not going to get rid of hating each other. We're not going to have, even if you know cultures and lived in other cultures, you're hating people is not going to stop. But how do we solve for enough that gives us the, I don't know, the, the breathing room to make a new to make an age of infinite. Yeah, maybe we can look at this um, from the, the leader's uh, perspective. Okay. And, and I think that's the, the part of our conversation that we also wanted to tackle uh, the decision makers. Okay. If, we have if we have leaders who share the same values, and who come to agree on the consumer problem that you just described in, in some countries where there's still high, high consumption and, and high waste that is clearly unnecessary. People can live with much, much less. But the uh, commercial and business mechanisms are such that the more you sell, the better you are off and you need to convince people to buy more and that's how the whole marketing science was invented uh, because you need to sell to make uh, a profit and the more you sell, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. So probably we need to reverse or modify that model so that everyone can live without this push for uh, consuming. Um, now, how can we change that with the right decision makers? And 
How do we make right decision makers? Maybe by bringing them to the same school so that they learn about each other and they understand how the others think. And this should include political leaders, scientists, and entrepreneurs. They should all be learning and practicing as young people so that when they get out of school, they continue forming teams and they uh, share the same values instead of uh, having countries competing for sometimes uh, not very clear reasons or companies competing uh, just because of uh, market share. Uh, that is a model that uh, is probably not very sustainable. If we, if we have the double of the population in, in 100 years, personally, I believe we can still live on planet Earth, on planet A, with more people than what we have today if we learn how to manage our resources uh, in a more intelligent way, in a more uh, recycling way, and uh, really using the resources we need and even without the, uh, the hate and the, the war that you were describing, David, as uh, unavoidable, I want to believe that they are avoidable. I want to believe they are avoidable and we can go uh, in the right direction. I'm looking around the world and maybe you've got a different newspaper or, or feed than I do. <laughs> I'm not seeing it. It's not happening. I agree. Okay. The, uh, when I'm working on projects, I think I try to find with the people that I'm dealing with a, a means by which to find a baseline. And I, and I love that your example that you used about the Chinese individual who in their society, culturally, they don't speak up unless they're asked, even if they have a great right. idea. Yeah. Uh, that, that actually happened to me at NYU. There were, I was a, an adjunct professor, but I taught a continuing ed executive education. I taught a, a series of programs for over 12 years. And we had a student in the class who was from uh, three student, one student in my class in the, who was in other classes. And the Dean shared with me that this student was not going to get his diploma. And yeah. I said, why not? She said, well, the two other teachers that teach him in other classes gave him bad grades because they never spoke up. And I said, wait, 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 that's not their culture. I said, but they, the, the teachers don't care. That's their job to speak up. I said, well, he spoke up tremendously in my class, in our class, because I knew culturally he had to find a safe zone and we did things differently. And I said to the dean, I will, they have to pass these classes. I will volunteer my time. I will work with these three students. They will take the same class, but I will manage it. I will do it all on my own time. And these are bright people and they should get their diploma certificate, whatever they were getting. And she said to me, David, stay out of other people's business, just do your own. And all three of them left the United States, went back to their countries without their diplomas. Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, 
I taught at NYU for 12 years, and I can tell you that it, I'm, people are going to hear this, it was not the best experience in the world. I was told that we were supposed to have teachers, that my classes were going to be reviewed every semester. At least one person would sit in, at least a class. In 12 years, not one single person sat in my classes at all. We did a lot of group activities. For example, the first day we got together, everybody got to know where they came from. My first class had 18 students from 17 countries. I told the class, I'm here to learn from you just as much as you're here to learn from me. Amazing. I'm still in touch with many of these students. And at the end of the semester, I would have a party, bring everybody together from all different years. We'd had people coming from eight years earlier, nine years earlier coming to these parties. We'd have 50, 60, 70 people. They were amazing. And the, the dean and the school every year said, you can't have them. And I said, why not? They're adults. It's after school is over. They get to pay their own meal, do everything. They didn't want that. And I've had the same challenges while teaching at Hong Kong University or HKUST and others in, in other parts of the world. So I, I'm going back. The reason I, I'm bringing that up is I don't know if education is the means to solve these challenges because we have to fix education before we can fix those challenges. And I don't have a timeline in my head for fixing education. Maybe you do. Do you have a timeline to fix education so that we can graduate enough people who, like you said, the, uh, the decision makers get together and they solve it? They work together that the Koreans and the Japanese and the Chinese and the Russians and the Americans and the Germans and the South Africans, Botswanians, the Brazilian, that they'll all get along in the same room. Yes, uh, I think that I want to believe that's possible. Okay. And um, I like when you talk about the teachers, uh, primary and secondary school, because they can do a big part of the job. Um, I know that uh, investing in, edu in education is investing in the longer term, but that can be done in parallel with other things. And uh, bringing education, but also opportunities uh, to every community um, needs to be a priority. Um, and when I say opportunities, I mean that um, you have a brain drain in many countries. Uh, mm -hmm. that have very good universities, very good graduates, but they need to go elsewhere or they need to change sectors uh, and, and work in something very different from what they studied to make a living. So it's about opportunities as well. And um, that's something we, we're doing very modestly, but uh, we're, for example, um, um, and this will be announced uh, very soon, um, an agreement uh, with the United Nations um, for uh, joint uh, scholarships uh, to uh, emerging uh, nations to help uh, good candidates from those countries uh, come and study to some of our courses. And um, once we announce that we're working with the United Nations on this, uh, we hope that there will be others uh, joining to chip in and complete the scholarship so that uh, the student uh, herself or himself uh, has almost nothing to pay for a, for a good course. Uh, and, and among those, we hope to find uh, corporations who 
uh, now I want to believe uh, more and more are convinced that they need to invest in these uh, underprivileged communities because they will become their future employees or customers or they will be future decision makers in the countries where they want to operate. So it's investing in education is not only for governments or for parents, it's also for companies. And I think that um, corporate social responsibility is, is growing. At least uh, I haven't seen statistics uh, recently, but I want to believe that corporate social responsibility uh, and, and real investing in, in development by companies uh, is growing. Would you agree, uh, David? I, I, uh, there's, a, there's a videos that I have shown people that I saw years ago. I can't remember the guy's name. It's about, it has gumballs. And they talk, he talks about the exodus of the brain drains from countries. And that once these individuals, and I'm going to extrapolate from that, once these individuals get educated in a, another country, they, they left their home country and now they're being educated in Switzerland or they're being educated in London, going back to their home countries is not always what happens. And the companies yep. that hire them export them to other countries. Yep. So we don't always solve the challenge that we're looking to solve. And it's the top tier people who get the education and those top tier people end up not always staying and solving their challenges. And then what they learn, and this is not socialism, is they learn consumerism. I lived in Hong Kong. I had 40 square meter, 400 square feet, and I was happy. In the States, I have, including finished uh, basement, we have about 400 square meter, 4,000 square feet. Yeah. And I got to walk a lot to get everywhere. <laughs> uh, I paid a lot more for that place in Hong Kong, though, by a factor of at least uh, almost one and a half to two times what it cost for me for my house. Yeah. And yet, uh, I mean, Hong Kong, the first week I was there, there was a front page of the South China Morning Post was if the, if the rest of the world lived at the same level of consumption and utilization as Hong Kong, Hong Kong people do, we need 13 additional Earths to keep up with demand and resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So again, I, I'm, I'm not trying to pick on you. Interviews always go in different directions. And what I'm trying to do is, you've kind of hit me at an interesting place. And that's why I'm asking these questions as I'm pushing is, I see what's happening around the world, not only because I read it, because I've lived there or worked there. So I've worked in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Malaysia, Singapore. I've worked in these countries, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Macedonia. I've worked in these places. I know what it's like. And I know that some of the challenges, I, don't, I haven't lived there enough to know everything, but I've seen what's the impacts that are happening. And Project Moonhunter, what we're doing is we're looking to solve them in a way that's very unconventional. That, leave that alone at that point. What we're looking for is unbelievable talent around the world to help us achieve what we believe, and when people do hear what we're doing, what we believe is a means by which to address some of the six mega challenges that we see. Right. And so why I'm pushing is because I'm a, I'm a little bit of a timeline guy. 
If you said to me, I've got to be there in uh, that it's got to be completed in 10 years, I would have a completely different plan than if you said it had to be done in seven years. It would be a completely different plan if I had to be done in five years. And if you said it had to be done in two years, it would be a completely different plan. So I'm looking at the plan and we're talking education. And I did a TED talk about education. Long story to it. I did a TED talk about education. And education is governance. That's all it is. Education is governance. And you teach differently in China than you do in India, than you do in the United States, than you do in, in France, because you're creating citizens. And we haven't solved education yet. So I'm challenged with the structure of finding the right people who can think differently enough, who could be a part of the team and build. And I'm pushing you because I'm trying to find answers that I might be missing, a different way, something I've overlooked, uh, a red line that I have not heard about. And so that I could say, okay, now I know something that I can do that I haven't done before. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let me give you a space example that I think can be extrapolated to any industry uh, to maybe uh, look at these uh, challenges that uh, you are very well describing at uh, Project Moonhut. Uh, one of my predecessors, um, Carl Deutsch, he would describe the, the training that our students get by saying, at the International Space University, we do not turn an engineer into a lawyer or vice versa. What we do is that we welcome a lawyer and we make her a space lawyer who is able to work with space engineers and uh, economists and uh, life scientists because she will have known how they think and she will be the perfect uh, team member in a multidisciplinary project team, which is what today's uh, projects are about. Uh, the, the complex challenges we have will be solved by, uh, as we all know, by multidisciplinary teams and multicultural teams, because those problems are global and we need good people from all over the place. So just this learning of uh, being open to ideas and understanding the, the terminology and the principles uh, used in, in other disciplines makes you a better specialist in your own discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's at the very basics of our um, teaching and, and learning philosophy. And obviously that is being adopted by many universities today. And um, I think we can extrapolate this, but if, if you, we stay in the, in the space domain, um, I think looking at our planet by comparing with other planets can also help us find some solutions even if the other planets are not uh, inhabited. Uh, there is a field uh, called um, comparative planetology that looks at uh, Venus, for example, or at Mars and tries to understand why did Mars have a magnetic field? Why did it have a, a denser atmosphere before? 
why does Mars no longer have a magnetic field or, or very weak? And why does it have a much thinner atmosphere today? Are they linked? What does this teach us uh, for planet Earth? Or um, what does Venus look like? And why are there extreme conditions there? Uh, is there life possible on Venus? What can we learn from Venus? What can we apply? And how does that help us understand the climatology on Earth by comparing with other planets who have extreme weather? There are even concepts that you will have heard about uh, called uh, terraforming Mars. Yep. So transforming uh, the atmosphere of Mars into a breathable one. Now, everything we learn uh, looking at other planets, we can apply it here and maybe we can do some cleanup in our own planet through this learning. So this is in the, in the science and the engineering field, but also we see space as a great place for inspiration. Uh, many people uh, are now imagining how will it be to live on the moon? What model of society would we like to have there? What will be the governance and uh, who will decide? Will they depend on, on the earth decisions? Will they be independent? Um, how can we not repeat the same mistakes on the moon that we have made on earth? So all that good thinking is very positive and perhaps we can use it already here without waiting for uh, whenever we will be living on the moon. There's a very interesting report that our students published uh, two years ago called Sustainable Moon. What they did was uh, taking the Earth's sustainable development goals and translating them into how would they be rewritten for a moon society? What would be important to do if we would have people living there uh, permanently? And that report got a prize uh, in Japan uh, given by the uh, Moon Village Association. Uh, so you were asking- Is it the Moon, Village, it the moon Village Association out of Europe? Uh, yeah, yeah, because you've got you've got Mankins. I think Mankins is on that, yeah. and Faber used to be a part. And yes, 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 okay. that's right. Uh, I think today it's it's quite global, uh, but you're right. Some of the thinkers are from Europe, um, but also from the U.S. Uh, but they had their conference in Japan. Uh, oh, so it was a conference in Japan. I, th I thought you said they got it yeah. out of Japan, as if there was an entity out of yeah. Japan. And so that's why uh, I was confused. Was the, was there's, there's, there, there, I think they're a Vienna group. Yes, uh, I'm not sure where they are registered, but uh, we're quite proud of, of uh, having been the hosts here in Strasbourg of the inaugural conference of the Moon Village Association uh, some four years ago. And um, they had their conference in Japan uh, about uh, one and a half years ago. That's where our students. So they got they the run prize. they got this they got the prize because they wrote about how the world how the moon should be run. Yes, yes, in a sustainable way uh, by taking into account uh, 
the sustainable development goals in terms of um, uh, they didn't take all 17 of them but but a good number and the report is public it's freely accessible um, on the isu library online but also on the website a dedicated website that is very easily um, uh, found uh, just by uh, looking for sustainable moon i think as dot com perhaps. so you, you by so the point is is that we could find people because how like how does i understand studying other culture other planetary uh structures and why magnetic field and thinner atmosphere and teach about what it could teach about planet earth and that the cleanup how does that help show me an example of how what you just described has translated on a large scale not small scale large scale impacts an entire species impacts an entire continent where's that connection so i'm still trying to where's the people where are these decision makers Yes. So do you have any, or is there any example of these type of large-scale achievements? Yes, I think um, just continuing, continuing on the, the topic of, of space as a source of inspiration and as a model, we all know at least of one child who is fond of space and is asking questions about uh, the cosmos and the, the, whether there is life out there or whether they want to become an astronaut. So space is really inspiring for children as it has been inspiring virtually every culture uh, through, through history. Because it's out there, because we don't know about it, because we know there is an influence, because we would like to be there. Uh, so it's about curiosity. Now, if you can channel that enthusiasm and that attractiveness of space through the schools as a way of learning, you can teach a lot of things taking advantage of the inspiration of space. You can get young students interested in uh, learning more. So space as a source of inspiration can have a global impact. And some countries do it very well. You go to Uruguay. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. You go to Uruguay, for example, um, at least some years ago, uh, the, um, the matter of um, astronomy was a compulsory one in all schools. Um, and uh, the government wanted to change that, but um, I think the teachers were good enough to uh, keep it going. Um, and today you, you have great people coming out of Uruguay who were inspired by their early astronomy classes and they, they look at the world um, in a different way, in a, in a more global way. Um, you were describing earlier your um, podcast with, uh, with um, Nicole Stott who as an astronaut uh, knows very well what the overview effect is, mm-hmm. uh, looking, looking at planet Earth from above and how your view of the world changes uh, and changes your life. If everyone could have an overview effect of planet Earth 
to become a better citizen, to become a more respectful, uh, a more uh, sober, um, and to become a better decision maker. Maybe that could be a good benefit of the uh, overview effect from space. We've also had Frank White on the series, who was the person who generated the overview effect. Yeah. The, the, uh, it's an interesting story, the overview effect. I think I used it in the one video that we share on our website, uh, which is not a website. It's a page with just three videos. And right. what uh, the challenge that I had with it is in 1968, they go up, they go around the moon. There actually was there. Uh, it's more or less said that the astronauts wanted to take a picture of Earth and they said that, OK, let's take it. But actually, the transcripts of what happened during there, there was actually a conflict because it was against mission. It was not mission to take a picture of Earth. And they had an issue as to if this person was going to do it. And he did it anyway. They ended up sharing. And so I ask individuals who are older, you saw this thing, this blue marble. Did you change the world because you saw the blue marble? And they said, well, in the beginning, yeah, we thought about it, but we really haven't come forward on those promises. This place, this planet, we're floating alone in the universe. Nobody else is around us where it's blue, it's, it's healthy, it's rich. We have to make sure we take care of it. The land, the seas. So I then say, okay, we've had 570 astronauts who've been into space, approximate number. Yeah. Is our world that much better? Or have we moved to a better society, a better culture? Do we treat people better? Are, are we taking care of our animals, our water, our land? Is the climate being taken care of? Because these 570 people have been up to space. Would you say that we have? I think it's difficult to measure so you're saying we could have been worse? <laughs> if, we could measure, if, we, if we could measure it, yes. There was an interesting study uh, in the UK uh, done by a, a university about the impact of uh, astronaut Tim Peake's mission to space. Uh, he flew, I believe, in 2013. What's the guy's name? Uh, Tim Peake. Okay. Uh, yeah. A peak like the peak of a mountain yep. with, with an E at the end. Uh, comparing um, statistics of uh, STEM studies uh, before and after Tim Peake's mission, uh, I think the, the conclusions were, were not uh, very, very clear. They probably needed more data or more astronauts to fly. Uh, but the phenomenon in the UK was uh, admirable. Uh, the number of schools, the number of uh, kids that were touched by that mission. Uh, we see it similarly um, in Israel. They are now preparing for the flight of their second uh, national astronaut. This, this one will be a private citizen. Um, we're working with the uh, Ramon Foundation. Yeah, uh, Ron Levin has yes. been on our program. Yes, I know Ron yes, very well. Right, that, right. It's, it's a, a really... Uh, great what they're doing in terms of using space enthusiasm to engage as school children. They get them to, to build experiments and the best one gets flown uh, to space. And this touches a, a lot of young people. I think um, it's difficult to measure and to give you a, 
a numbered answer, uh, David. It's, it's not. I think do, we're, do you... we're making progress. <laughs> Ron, by the way, the first time we went over, sitting in Tel Aviv, sitting in a restaurant, went over what Project Moonhunter was about. He said, we will give you everything we have on file. It'll be in Hebrew, but yeah. we will give you all the course, the materials, whatever you need to do what you're doing. He said, we want to be a part of this. We understand it. Yeah. And this is, this is big. We yeah. have a, a construct of billion hearts and minds. We talk about how we can be involved in 5.2 million classes around the world because we need 5.2 million. Uh, 5.2 million schools. And there are 4,000 universities in the United States. All these numbers we've looked at. And how do we achieve that? The challenge comes, still the question is, in my mind is, we went to space. We did the spacey thing. We still are in space. Do we feel that the world is that much better? Are we getting along? Do we understand each other more? Are, is, are, are the Russians, the Americans, the Chinese, the and I use them because they're bigger countries, but we can pick all the countries through South Africa, Botswana, Zambia, Nigeria, Ethiopia. We could pick the Brazils, the Chiles, the Colombians. The, we could pick all of them. Are we that much better as a society? Are, are we doing all the things necessary? And I, I hear that you don't have an answer. I will give you mine. I say no. And I don't think, I think it's aspirational to believe that one piece of the over, seeing the overview effect will change enough minds fast enough to appreciate our earth because we don't appreciate the things that we have that are right in front of us as human beings. So don't want to, I, I could beat you over the head for quite a period of time. We've hit a lot. I, you've made, I've put some notes on my, I've made six pages of notes. So it's not like I'm not paying okay. attention. Uh, okay. I've got, so let's go to the next one. Planets A, B, C, and others. What do you mean? I mean that we live on the best planet on earth that we could have. <laughs> okay. Uh, one astronaut came back and was asked, uh, what did you miss? When you were up there, he said, family and nature. And I agree with him. Uh, on Earth, we have family and nature, and we need to learn to take better care of both uh, family and nature. And the day we will learn that nature is a member of our family, maybe we will have solved it. Um, you know, there are now... Uh, movements in favor of animal rights because when we kill all those chicken and all those pigs and all those cows so that we can eat they suffer now who who is able to decide what rights they have maybe sh they should uh, be given some more rights and more respect if they were family members uh, like pets nobody wants to kill their pet or eat their pet. Um, Are you a vegetarian? So Are you a vegan? I eat a little bit of everything. And I said a little bit. Okay. Uh, so um, I think that's what, what we need to do, Le eat a little bit of everything. So the other planets, um, David, they're out there to teach us about our own planet. I think that um, 
has come across uh, already in, in our discussion. And it's good in, in engineering to think of option B and option C and learn about uh, risk management and um, foresight, not only in engineering, but also in, in policy, uh, political science and in, in legal science, in economics, uh, to look at uh, risks and, and risk mitigation so that our planet B is within ourselves, so that the solutions in case of big problems are, are here. Um, one of the topics I've been teaching uh, in recent years is uh, crisis uh, management or crisis communication in case of a major mishap uh, in your company, for example, how do you communicate to your stakeholders about a major crisis so that you control the damage and that you keep your stakeholders still on board, whether they are customers or uh, employees or family members. And I think we need to consider our planet as, as a member of our family that um, we need to take good care of and we need to get ready um, if something happens to it before, well ahead, and have uh, good prevention and good mitigation. So what, are, what are we, so what are we not doing today in crisis management that we should be doing about planet A? I think there, there are many, many things we, we can do uh, by looking at the whole economy, the, the, the models, uh, the, the whole governance, and um, the effect of what we do on, on planet Earth. This should be taught. People should understand about the consequences of we, what we do as individuals and as a society so that um, we can keep control of uh, what's happening. I don't have any miracle solution other than encouraging those who decide to invest more in education and in um, mutual understanding and getting people to talk to each other rather than uh, getting people to criticize each other. Very often when we criticize something, it's because we just don't know it. We never went there to see what's happening. We never uh, listened to that person. We just assume things uh, that, that uh, may not be the right assumptions. Uh, so these are all um, human learnings. And um, that's one part of the learning. And I think the other part of the learning and the teaching that we need to invest much more in is in science and technology. Because when we look at the challenges that uh, you have defined uh, at Project Moonshot, Moonhut, sorry. Okay. Um, I think scientific research and uh, technology solutions can, can help a lot. And they need to be developed by people who need to be well-trained. So I'm always coming back to education and training. The 
when you look at the the most popular people in the space industry today uh, by by media, not by achievements, yeah, Musk, Bezos, and Branson, I don't think any of them finished university. And some people uh, say that uh, the International Space University is not a real university uh, because uh, we're not uh, acknowledged by, by governments. Uh, and that's by design. Our founders wanted this to be a, an independent, uh, non-government organization to remain a neutral forum for discussion and exchange of ideas without the influence of any individual government or company. So the, the term uh, university diploma or university uh, institution are, are relative. And we all know that some of the Nobel Prizes or some of the, the best uh, artists or movie makers, they were very bad students because they were already working and thinking and studying other things than what they were asked to do at school. Um, so maybe the model of education uh, also needs to be uh, revisited uh, and uh, allow for um, good talent to develop in what they want to learn and not what we want them to learn. One of my educational tools for me is the podcast series or the Great. interviews I've done. I've done, I think, close to two and a half thousand or three thousand interviews with some of the most amazing individuals around the world. That's one way I learn. I did well in school because I had to. And my wife was brilliant with our children. She sat yeah. down with them when they were very young, complaining about how terrible school was, how the teacher didn't know as much as they did because they could see it on the internet. And the teacher was some, had slides that were six years old yeah. or eight years old. And my wife would sit them down and say, education, is a fraction of what you need to know to live in the world today. What mm -hmm. they teach you there, you have to get through because it's a game, a piece of paper that moves you forward. So just yeah. do what you need to do, but the real yeah. world are the things that we're teaching you and the things that you're learning through the experiences we have. So our, appro our approach was very different is that we, I would take our kids to, we've owned businesses since we've been uh, around, since uh, my wife and I have been together. And I would take them on a field trip to a warehouse or to a manufacturing plant or to another plant. And they would see things that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah. And so education is very different. I think the term education needs to change uh, overall to, to meet these very bad students who, as you say, became Nobel Prize winners. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So and what uh, are we I think that, that takes us to, to the, uh, the new ways of, of teaching and learning that are much more interactive and much more real world connected, uh, much more uh, interdisciplinary and um, much more uh, oriented towards problem solving uh, than uh, just memorizing uh, theoretical concepts. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do. And I think the, the educators worldwide are, are aware of this. They're working on this. So what about this last one then? Discuss what we do with our hands. What to do with yes. our hands. So what, are, what should we be doing or what or how? Where, where do you want to go with this? Yes. Well, on this one, I'm 100% uh, 
in line with you, uh, David, when you were asking earlier, um, how can we turn things into action and not just stop at uh, making studies? Uh, personally, I've been um, doing things with my hands since I was a child, uh, whether it is uh, out in the field or with, with a farm or uh, building or repairing uh, machines, whether they are bicycles or motorcycles or, uh, or just the plumbing, mm -hmm. uh, building furniture uh, out of wood. Uh, and this has been something that, without me noticing, uh, has filled many of my free time hours and probably uh, relaxed and cleaned my mind from the normal study or, or work. Uh, so what I enjoy is uh, doing. And sometimes the doing is uh, take uh, what you have done with your children, taking them out and showing them places that you love, where you think other people should also go and see and learn. And that's something I still do now as a hobby, not exactly a, a hands-on hobby where you build things, but what I enjoy and I hope to still do uh, after my term at International Space University is take uh, groups of uh, enthusiastic young people who want to learn, uh, take them on a trip to a place where they would probably not go on their own. And this place is uh, in the middle of the Amazon rainforest between Venezuela and Brazil on the Atlantic coast. It's a place that is still part of Europe. It's called French Guiana, mm -hmm. where you can discover the um, melting pot of cultures, the extreme, bio, extreme richness of the biodiversity in the Amazonian rainforest. It's one of the best preserved sites of the Amazonian rainforest because it has been almost not exploited by agriculture or, or mining, almost no. And just in the middle of it, you have a high-tech civilian launch site for uh, satellites, uh, spaceport for uh, European rockets that uh, launch telecom and Earth observation and navigation and uh, exploration satellites. Uh, by the way, the, um, the famous uh, James Webb Space Telescope, very well known in the United States, uh, a major NASA mission, will be launched, we hope, before the end of this year, out of French Guiana on board an Ariane 5 rocket. Um, the teams are going down there very soon. And the is it a replacement for the Hubble? It is the the second Hubble, exactly, yes. James Webb Space Telescope that will uh, bring us even more knowledge uh, compared to, to Hubble. Uh, so that's a place on Earth that I think many people should see so that they are impacted by the overview effect, even if we don't call it that, of uh, the richness of nature and the richness of um, ethnical and cultural melting pot that lives there. 
obviously COVID has also had an impact there. So we're not sure uh, what the next trip will exactly look like, but uh, there will be a next trip. And uh, I take uh, groups of some 15 people there uh, once or twice per year. And they come back really um, impressed. Some of them even uh, apply for jobs and eventually they, they go and, and spend a few years working there. Uh, so that's a type of hands with my hands project that I can see the results. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, if you'll allow me to maybe uh, give you a couple of concluding uh, sure. thoughts, uh, David. Throughout my career, um, some of the most challenging jobs have been in education, but clearly the most rewarding job that I can say my hands had something to do with it is when I see the faces of our graduating uh, students. On the day of graduation, you don't need to speak much, you don't need to hear much, just watch people's uh, faces and what they say to each other and how they, they hug each other. They don't want to, to leave and they will stay in touch. Uh, so that's the result of of um, hard work by uh, many people, professors and staff and the administration and the sponsors. But it's the most rewarding feeling. And those uh, alumni, you know this because you have children and you have uh, worked with teachers. For a teacher, the most rewarding um, result of their work is when a former student comes back after maybe some years and says, thanks to you, I'm, I'm now here. So maybe, maybe thanks to us, the planet uh, in a few years will be here. <laughs> and it will tell us, thank you uh, for <laughs> taking good care of me. We, yes, thank you. We are... We are very optimistic of the, the work that we're doing. We believe that we'll make the changes I, and uh, we, we will be here. There will be challenges <laughs> ahead. Uh, I did teach at NYU, as I mentioned, I had uh, yes. two different classes. Many students took me twice, so, but I had 309 students over those 12 years. I'm still in touch with probably yes. over 250 of them. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. And yeah. yes, thank you for taking the time to talk uh, with us today, to talk to me today. And I've got some notes of things that we might be able to change, do differently to make sure that we keep on, keep on moving the initiatives that we've put forward, forward. And I'd like to thank all of you out there for taking the time in your day to listen in. I do hope that you learned something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Uh, Project Moon Hut Foundation is where we look to establish, once again, a box of the roof and a door on the moon through the accelerated development of an earth and space-based ecosystem. Then to take those endeavors, the paradigm shifting thinking, the innovations, and turn them back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species. With that said, uh, Juan, uh, I wanna thank you. Is, is there one best way to connect with you? 
LinkedIn. Oh, okay. And so just you could spell your name so that everybody has it accordingly and they can look you up in that way. Yes, I will spell my name and um, I will do it in a way that will help uh, everyone to practice the international alphabet. Okay. Which as a, as a former pilot, I, I like the international alphabet because uh, it avoids mistakes uh, when you have to to communicate over radio, you cannot allow mistakes to happen when uh, the pilot is talking to the control tower, right? So yep. uh, my name is Juliet Uniform Alpha November, New Word Delta Echo, New Word Delta Alpha Lima Mike Alpha Uniform. And I am... Uh, an admiring user of LinkedIn because it's very powerful. It's serious. You can have many connections. You never lose them because they are always there. And what I appreciate most of LinkedIn is that when a student comes to me and says, I would like to do an, inter an internship here or there, or I would like to get in touch with an expert or a, such a company or such a project, I take my phone and I immediately connect that student with the person I know in this or that organization just by searching very quickly. And then I introduce them to each other without having to do a long introduction or explaining uh, the lives of each of them. It's all on LinkedIn. So I just say, hello, so-and-so, please meet so-and-so. There's something of mutual interest, you should discuss. Thank you. So the introduction is done. And I hope that doesn't consume too much energy, David, and doesn't uh, pollute, pollute the atmosphere too much, uh, even if I'm using uh, the internet. <laughs> we can't reduce ourselves to the point to turn what we have, ha what we've created around. So it's, I, I'm thinking, have you seen the movie with Tom Cruise where he's on the racetrack and there's the smoke and he has to decide, does he break? Or does he go through it? Thunderbolt or something? I don't remember. No, um, I haven't. <laughs> there's a, you've, see, you've seen the clip. And what he does is he shoots through it. He doesn't yeah. break. We mm. have to shoot through it. So that was a, a great end uh, with the LinkedIn. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to get a con connect with me, you can reach me at david at moonhut.org. As I did mention, there are three videos in the top right-hand corner. Uh, number one is a presentation that was given in... Uh, where was number in Macedonia? Second one is in Luxembourg. And the third one is what we're working on, on a large scale. We have a moon hot project. We have a moon hot lever and we have a moon hot purpose. And we describe many of the things that we're doing. We have individuals all around the world who are participating. Number two, you can connect with us on uh, Twitter uh, at Project Moon Hut. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram. So we're there. And that said, I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening.